Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Maggie Mendenhall-Casey, General Counsel of the City of Chicago's Commission for Public Safety and Accountability. Hey, Maggie. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to chat today, as always. Good. Maggie, we are here today to discuss a scandal that has rocked one of the nation's leading universities, Northwestern. Many in our audience may know the basic facts, if only from the national headlines they've garnered over the past months. But for a very quick reminder and background, the timeline is as follows. In November of 2022, Northwestern received an anonymous complaint of hazing at its football program. In December 2022, Northwestern hired Maggie Hickey of Errant Fox Schiff as outside counsel to conduct an internal investigation of those allegations. More than half a year later, after Ms. Hickey's investigation was completed, Northwestern University President Michael Schill announced on July 7, 2023, a two-week suspension of football coach Pat Fitzgerald, a vaunted figure in the community. And that was when most of us first learned about this scandal. Just one day later, on July 8th, the school paper, The Daily Northwestern, published an article detailing previously vague hazing allegations and alleging that Fitzgerald may have known about this hazing all along. Two days after that, on July 10th, Northwestern fired Coach Fitzgerald, who denied any knowledge of the hazing. In the following days, weeks, and months, allegations of hazing spread to other football players and other Northwestern sports programs, including the baseball team, the volleyball team, the soccer team, the swimming team. The list went on. Former U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch was hired to lead an independent review, and a cascade of lawsuits followed. Coach Fitzgerald filed a lawsuit against Northwestern for wrongful termination, demanding $130 million in damages, and hiring former guest and friend of the pod, Dan Webb, to represent him. Additional lawsuits were filed on behalf of numerous hazing victims, including several by friend and former guests of the pod, Ben Crump, and more importantly for our conversation today, attorney Pat Salvi II, managing partner at Salvi Shostak and Pritchard, a lawyer who is quickly making a name for himself as one of the leading lights of the plaintiff's personal injury bar. Full disclosure for our audience, Pat and I have worked on opposite sides of the V. We've worked on the same side of the V, none of which will impact the quality of my questioning today. So, Pat, welcome. And speaking of hard questions, what's your favorite color? Well, it's got to be blue. That's basically the color of all my suits. (laughs) There you (laughs) go. Can't be purple for this conversation, (laughs) right? Yeah, John and Maggie, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you here, Pat. Thank you for joining us. You know, I I think maybe a good place to start will be just to tell our audience, to your knowledge, based on your investigation, your lawsuit, what the heck was happening at Northwestern? Like, what are we talking about here when we say hazing was occurring? Yeah. So how deep do you want me to go? As deep as you want. Yeah. I'm going to go back a little ways because I... I have a little bit of a theory, and it goes something like this. In the 80s into the early 90s, there was a situation within the Northwestern football program where they were bad. I mean, they were were very bad. And in came Gary Barnett, an an associate, or I'm sorry, an assistant coach at Colorado, had had incredible success. I believe as an offensive coordinator, they won a national championship and he comes to Northwestern. And there's an incredible rise when Gary Barnett comes to the program. And that coincided with Pat Fitzgerald uh, winning twice 
the national uh, defensive player of the year, uh, not just the Big Ten, the nation. Right, they so, went to the Rose Bowl, right? Went, they, yep. they went from obscurity to the top. They went from winning very few games every year to winning the Big Ten and having sustained success in the mid to late 90s. And really, and we do have clients from that period of time. And what we've learned from that period of time is that there certainly was instances of hazing, abuse, things that occurred where player to player, full knowledge of the coaching staff, things were happening that anybody, any parent, any human being that thinks of themselves, if I'm 17, 18, 19 years old, going to have my first college experience, and I'm greeted with this type of behavior, and I am forced to do things that, uh, not just to exhaustion, not just in order to have the person conditioned for the sport, but to humiliate and to uh, really put individuals on the brink of extreme exhaustion to the point where in the early 2000s, there was the tragic Rashidi Wheeler incident. Pat, remind us what that was. Sure. I don't remember the exact date. In the early 2000s, uh, when Randy Walker was the head coach, Randy Walker passed away, I think, in 2006, and Pat Fitzgerald took over for him. He passed away suddenly, I think, from a heart condition. Randy Walker took over for Gary Barnett when he left for the University of Colorado. In the early 2000s, Rashidi Wheeler, who, as I understand it, had a pre-existing condition, maybe asthma or something like that. I don't want to misspeak on the specifics and um, disrespect him or his family, but essentially he was run to exhaustion and dehydration to where he died. Mm -hmm. And there was a lawsuit. There was a significant settlement paid for that lawsuit. And it is one instance of many, not others that resulted in such a, such a catastrophic and tragic outcome such as death, but where there was hazing and abusive behavior that really has no place in sports or in any field. I mean, it's, I've, I've made this analogy. Could you imagine if at a law firm or some other respectable establishment that people were hazed and, and forced to undergo sexual acts? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And so why would we subject 17 and 18-year-olds to that type of misconduct? And so as this culture, I think, built on itself, it was not nipped in the bud. It needed to be, and it was not. The athletics department, I think, spun out of control over the last several decades to the point where there have been some public, some not as public instances of clear hazing and abuse that have been called out most recently with Pat Fitzgerald and the football team. But historically, we also know of instances from the men's swimming team, from the women's volleyball team, from the men's baseball team, the men's soccer team, the cheerleading squad. It has happened in so many different sports uh, that it has become clear to us that this was a cultural problem that has only gotten worse over the years. And Northwestern, rather than addressing it vigorously and ridding themselves of this cancer, instead instances were really swept under the rug 
Band-Aids were used, short suspensions. I think really nothing is more telling than the initial attempt to suspend Pat Fitzgerald for two weeks during an NCAA dead period, which was, I mean, that's not even a slap on the wrist. That's even less. And then a couple days later, firing him. So that was another attempt to sweep it under the rug. But then when more facts became public, they realized stronger action was needed. So we hope that this is a reckoning for Northwestern and also for other schools around the country to ensure that their athletic department does not have this behavior going on. So, Pat, when I hear you speak, I hear that true passion and care and fight for your clients. It comes through clearly. For me, before I knew that I was going to uh, be having the pleasure to speak to you, I wasn't acclimated with this case at all. I heard hazing. I knew hazing was happening. I didn't know what hazing meant. As I started looking a little bit more into this, I started seeing that there were specific terms that the football team in particular used to describe the hazing that was occurring. Terms like car wash, running, shrek. Do you mind telling us, and I and I understand you want to protect everyone's sensitive ears, but do you mind telling us a little bit of what that's like so people can get a true understanding of, we've heard the end of the gamut, which is somebody being run until they unfortunately pass away. But can you explain some of those terms to us about what was happening at Northwestern? I will. I've, I'll warn your listeners that it's it's sexually explicit. So the car wash is quite literally... Uh, naked football players and their subjects, so to speak, are are looking to take a shower after a practice. Uh, typically, this was, as I understand it, in, in Kenosha, where they had their summer camp prior to the season starting. So, you know, the August time frame. And as uh, part of this ritual, folks would be forced, literally forced, if you want to take a shower, you're going to have to rub up against uh, the naked bodies of, you know, however many other football players. And my clients and the clients of other law firms, they did it. They were forced to do it. They were freshmen. So, you know, quite literally three months before they had graduated from high school. And here they are, 18 years old, thinking, well, I guess this is what college football is. And so here they are being humiliated. And then to the extent anybody might get out of line, and uh, we've heard stories that the coaches would even partake in creating what's called a Shrek list, which meant that they would have to get, quote, run. And getting run, and and it's been described to us, and it's uh, just a horrifying experience where five, six, seven football players would hold down another football player and then take turns violently humping, uh, just totally humiliating the individual in sort of this ritualistic way in one of the dorm rooms at the Kenosha camp. Uh, so, you know, of course, against their will and and uh, underclassmen or others that are, you know, otherwise vulnerable would be, um, you know, subjected to this. And so it's something that, that took its toll on a number of individuals and, um, and is part of what this litigation is about. It's not the only thing it's about, but those instances of which there are many is a, an important aspect of it. Pat, on that, how widespread was this hazing? Are, are we talking about this is something that every freshman football player or nearly every freshman football player went through, or were they targeting specific individuals or classes of individuals other than, you know, newbies? Sure. So, you know, my understanding is that 
let's say, for example, someone just refused, uh, someone was, you know, hard-headed yeah. and just refused to do it. There would be other forms of them being ostracized. There would be other forms of them being hazed, maybe uh, something like, you know, one player in particular described a situation where he was made to take, you know, all of his clothes off literally on the practice field and embarrassed uh, in that way. So, so there were different ways that various players, and we believe strongly and based on the evidence that we've heard and seen coaches as well, were involved in ensuring that people that did not get on board, that they would essentially be, I, I can't say it any better than ostracized or, or isolated. Uh, and then others that went through it, it, it was just humiliating and left a long-lasting effect. So in one sense, it was part of the ritual, part of the hazing uh, in terms of the, the new players. But then in, in another sense, it was, you know, targeting folks that, that maybe were a little more vulnerable, maybe not, you know, the all Big Ten starting quarterback or lineman or safety, mm-hmm. but maybe somebody else so that they could send a message. And, and as we've heard it referred to the wildcat way so that everybody would get in line. That's just not the way to do it. There are other ways for coaches and leaders, as in the players who are the leaders, to run a program. This ain't it. This can't be it because the effects that it leaves, I don't think they understand. It does leave an impact on someone's emotional state. And beyond the sexual hazing that you described, there are also some racial elements to it as well. And in particular, do you want to tell us a little bit about your client, Ramon Diaz, and what he experienced? Sure. And Ramon has been very outspoken and a real leader in this litigation and just in this effort to try to drive change. And so Ramon, uh, for example, had his head shaved, uh, Cinco de Mayo was shaved into his head, and otherwise was frequently subjected to, you know, you could call it microaggressions, you know, comments, but... That sounds macro uh, to me. That's ma- shaving well, in the that's, head, right? That's, ma- that's <laughs> macro. Um, but, but, but... Smaller uh, things as well, Well, yes. you mm-hmm. know... Uh, Maybe it's not fair to even call them smaller because I'm talking about stuff like if he walks into the offensive line room and it's not clean, something like, well, your ancestors know how to clean up on it, you know, stuff like that where his Latino heritage was demeaned. And particularly as as he's described it publicly in the offensive line room, the racism was uh, at a fever pitch. We have African-American clients as well who have described uh, similar occurrences. There's been a lot of discussion as it relates to, you know, forcing black players to cut their hair, whereas white players could have long hair and it wouldn't be a problem. But the black players' dreads, for some reason, was a problem. And there are a number of players that felt very strongly about that and and to me that's that's not like a small thing you're talking about someone's culture you're talking about someone's self-worth their their ethnicity their race uh, and it's just being demeaned and there have been plenty of stories that i've heard that show us that the racial discrimination has it has been rampant for some time pat oftentimes when you hear people talking about 
hazing, particularly the people who are engaging in the hazing themselves. They talk about it as in positive terms, you know, as a team building kind of thing, building camaraderie, that sort of idea. Have you had a chance to either through speaking with your clients or perhaps even speaking to some of the people who are perpetrating this hazing, gotten an idea of what the motivation was. You you hinted at this a little bit before when you were talking about a culture, and I want to go there in a minute. But with the players themselves, do you know what they were thinking when they were doing this? The best I can guess, and this is in part kind of looking at the long history of this, even going back to when Pat Fitzgerald was a player, the best I can tell is that it's a disciplinary thing, mm. like get in line. Don't think that you can be an individual. You know, you're, you you got to get in line. And I said it before, there are other ways to do it. And to your point, John, about, you know, hazing can be, you know, the word, and as it's defined by the NCAA, it's a bad thing. I mean, you can't, ha- right. hazing is, is, is not allowed. But, you know, I think back, I mean, just to use a silly example, I was in a fraternity in college. And there wasn't, you know, in terms of hazing or anything that was across the line, nothing like that. And the funny example that I think of is, you know, with fraternities, we've all seen like those fraternity paddles, you know, you got those big paddles, they're decorated. Right. And they did this thing where, you know, they had some of us as the pledges, we were lined up and, you know, they were doing this big buildup as if they were going to, you know, hit us hard in the behind with the paddle. And at the end, when it was, you know, three, two, one, it was just a fake. And then they give you a hug, right? And then you go have a beer. Yeah. So it was innocent. It was it was funny. Yeah, you were kind of like, are they really going to hit me with it? You know, you're not physically threatening anybody. It's a joke. Nobody really even felt like they were going to be physically harmed in that, you know, example, in the silly example I just gave. But if you're talking about doing things that are kind of different and funny, that's one thing. But when it becomes sexualized, when it's racial discrimination, when it's physical exhaustion to the point where people are, you know, literally throwing up or worse, and and I described the Rashidi Wheeler incident, that is a bridge too far. When it leads to physical harm, when it leads to lasting emotional damage, when it when it is of a racial nature that is demeaning to the individual, that's too far. And whether it's Northwestern or any other school, does anybody think Northwestern is the only school in America that's in, that's what that's I wanted to allowed? ask you about? Yeah, no, yeah. of course not. Uh, but there are schools that have done it right too. So we want this to be a reckoning for Northwestern and others to ensure that kids, I mean, I'm, I'm 41. So to me, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, they're kids, right? I mean, my goodness, they are kids. They're adult bodies, but they are kids, mind and heart. They need to be shepherded in their first months and years of their college experience, particularly if somebody's going to Northwestern to play football, where there are going to be incredible academic rigors to go along with having to try to play Division I Power Five conference football. Do they have to work hard and put in long hours and and physically work hard? Absolutely. But it's that next step to physical harm and demeaning and abuse 
that it just can't be. My son plays baseball. He's he's only eight years old, right? He made the travel team. It's very exciting. Uh, do I think he's going to play for my beloved, although not very good, Chicago White Sox? No, no, I don't. But when I see this stuff, does it give me pause? Do I even want him to go play? Right. Like if he was good enough to go play college, would I even want him to if he might be subjected to something like this? Parents shouldn't have to worry about it. Kids shouldn't have to worry about it. So, Pat, here, the the question is, did they know or should they have known? Did the coaches know? Should they have known? Did Northwestern know? Should they have known? And I'm going to put on my my old defense attorney hat here, and it's like duty, breach, proximate cause, damages. We know the duty. The damages are extremely clear. What case will you be making to the extent that you can tell us about the breach and the proximate cause? How are you planning to show that Northwestern knew or should have known, especially in light of the initial, I guess, executive summary, because it wasn't the full report, executive summary that was uh, released by Maggie Hickey? Sure. So I would start with just the general concept, and this is no secret to uh, most folks, College football coaches these days exert a level of control over their team in terms of what they eat, in terms of their schedule, when is their study hall, when are they working out, when is practice, I mean, to the minute. So when you're talking about big-time football, like Big Ten Northwestern football, Pat Fitzgerald, who even though last season was not a good season, has had plenty of successful seasons and has overall been a successful coach at Northwestern, do we think for one second that he didn't know what was going on? I'll just start with that premise. But in addition to that, I've heard plenty of anecdotes to the point where it's really no longer an anecdote, but just part of the culture where whether it was Pat Fitzgerald or one of his assistant coaches, a coordinator or a position coach, they knew full well and participated at times. When it comes to the racial discrimination, we know that there was a call. There was a big Zoom call between the players and the coaches to try to address it where the black players wanted to address this, um, which is a big deal because that's pretty courageous to reach out to the coach and say, hey, we need to address racial discrimination within your football program. So you when can was only that, imagine Pat? recently, recently, yeah. you know, okay. uh, with uh, um, after the scandal broke. No, before. No, nope, okay. before the scandal. Okay. Yeah, no, no. They, they didn't have cover because it was, you know, in the public discourse. Right. This was before yeah. that. This was when they were trying to, so to speak, keep it in-house. And that's the thing. This this hazing stuff, so often it gets swept under the rug. The fact that it exploded the way that it did this last summer, I think goes to show just how public, certainly within the program, it was, that people knew. Pat Fitzgerald was an assistant for some time before he became the head coach. He's been the head coach for, I think, or until he was terminated this summer, I think for 16 or 17 years, and he played there. So to suggest he didn't know what was going on with, within his program, I don't think that's going to be a very easy case for uh, Mr. Webb to make in the wrongful termination lawsuit. The other thing is that given, if we take a step back from the football program, certainly the football program brought significant attention to this, there are also these other sports where there have been, in certain instances, very public hazing allegations. 
and this has happened over the years most recently, you know, the maybe not so much hazing as it was just as it's been described in the news, a toxic culture within the baseball program where Coach Foster was fired very recently. And then you go back and it's happened in other sports as well. The, I, I mentioned the cheerleading squad. There's women's soccer. There's men's swimming. And so the athletic department as a whole has had this problem for a long time. And we believe, based on the stories we've heard from our clients, of course, we haven't engaged in significant discovery, electronic uh, discovery, for example. Um, we believe that there's going to be significant evidence that there have been many, over the years, reach-outs by athletes and others. And really, it was just met with brand protection rather than student-athlete protection. That's probably a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. Are you looking to get away to someplace warm and sunny this winter? Join the Chicago Bar Association's CLE Abroad in Mexico. We're headed to Mexico City from March 24th to March 26th with an optional extension trip to beautiful San Miguel Allende from the 27th to the 29th. The trip will include CLE programming for attorneys, as well as tours, cultural experiences, and networking opportunities. Attorneys and their guests are welcome to attend. To learn more and register, visit chicagobar.org backslash Mexico 2024. We hope to see you there. And we're back. Pat, when we left off, you were starting to get into a discussion, I think, about the culture at Northwestern more broadly. And earlier in the podcast, you mentioned what you called the wildcat way, which I think was probably hinting at the same thing. If I understand you correctly, are you saying the the thing that connects the hazing that was going on in the swimming program, the soccer program, the football program, was the school's administration that they, you think, had knowledge that all of this was going on? I think that when an organization, so let's just take the athletic department. I think if you start back in the mid to late 90s, and we, and as I mentioned, we do have clients from that era, and you carry that through to today, uh, where this has all become very public and over the last few months has been very painful for many Northwestern alums, some of which are dear friends of mine, which uh, makes things not easy, but it doesn't mean it's not the right thing. And so when you have a culture where the reaction to various instances of hazing or the reaction to a coach creating a toxic culture, when the reaction is more in line with how do we protect our brand, when it's more in line with, well, what do we need to do in order to avoid any sort of a public problem versus just, you know, let's keep it in-house and not have it spill over. So for example, coaches are not fired, but they get a slap on the wrist. How does that affect behavior going forward? Right. When there are not dramatic consequences, how does that affect how people view how they should behave? And so what I think has occurred over the course of decades is bad behavior 
it did not lead to consequences that made anybody believe that this was uh, something that the school did not tolerate, quite the opposite. And so as time marched on, it's kind of like whether it's just incrementally or whether it's just part of how people are behaving and thinking, it just becomes part of the fabric of the athletics department. And Mm -hmm. so when I read the complaint from the cheerleader, it's all public. It's the Richardson complaint. Tell our audience about that. Yeah, there's there, okay. So there are articles from the Chicago Tribune. The complaint is is publicly available in the federal court system. So a Northwestern cheerleader filed a Title IX lawsuit against Northwestern, basically having to do with the fact that as a cheerleader, she would be made to go to alumni events, particularly with wealthy male donors, where they would drink significantly and end up behaving in ways that are just abhorrent as as it relates to just treating women with respect. And they would be handsy and groping and inappropriate comments, and this would be regular. And it's all detailed in the complaint, which, as I understand it, is perhaps approaching trial. I don't want to speak out of turn in terms of the procedure of that case, the posture of that case. But I know it's been going on for a few years and I've read the complaint and you read it and you just think to yourself, Northwestern, you you cannot allow this. This cannot be how you treat your student athletes so that your wealthy alums give more money because they're able to, you know, mingle with cheerleaders. I mean, that that is not acceptable. And so if, if they are in that place in the late 2010s, if that behavior is going on here in the last five years, and that is considered acceptable within the athletics department, well, then what else is going on? I mean, it kind of speaks to the culture that's existed and that we've seen in these other sports where hazing instances have been validated and there has been public disclosure of them. And, and, and that's just what we know. Once we get into discovery, I expect we're going to find out more. In that case in particular, now, if the allegations are proven to be true, that sounds like more than haste. That sounds almost like pimping, which you should not obviously be doing, and especially not for fundraising dollars. I am curious about, so you just mentioned or mentioned in the last segment, Coach Fitzgerald's wrongful termination lawsuit against Northwestern. Do you think that the coach pointing a finger at Northwestern, Northwestern pointing the finger at the coach will impact any of the athletes' cases, your cases at all? Well, I just think very basically, when you look at Northwestern's reaction to Pat Fitzgerald's lawsuit, they've stood by their decision to terminate him. And so what does that mean? I think it means that they know that Pat Fitzgerald engaged in misconduct They're going to stand by their termination. We don't know all the details of the Maggie Hickey report. We want to get them. We intend on requesting them. We'll see what we're able to get through the legal process. But despite its conclusion that I have to question that he didn't have reason to know about it, they end up terminating him just a couple of days later. And now, standing by that decision would seem to support our clients' claims. So Northwestern, just if they're being intellectually honest, they can't have their cake and eat it too. I don't see a scenario where they say, yeah, you know what, coach, we we shouldn't have fired you. I I, I don't think that would be factually supported. But I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, that 
that's true for both of those litigants. And by that, I mean everything that Northwestern will be using against Coach Fitzgerald, or that we would anticipate they'd be using, and everything that Coach Fitzgerald will be using against Northwestern only accrues to the benefit of you and your clients. I would agree. And so we're going to have to see how it plays out. We're very early on in the process. And so, as you both know, you know, the legal process will take place and we'll see where discovery takes us and and ultimately if we get to a trial. Do you expect, as this starts to play out, more athletes to start coming forward? Yeah. So there have been ebbs and flows in terms of calls that we've gotten. So I think that many folks have already come forward and I think there are plenty of folks who uh, and this is this is why these types of things frequently go on for years without being called out. I mean, just look at the University of Michigan with Dr. Anderson. Look at Michigan State with uh, Dr. Nasser. USC, Ohio State. There are other examples. Uh, go outside of college sports, and you can look at the Boy Scouts clergy abuse. Why does it go on? Why does it go on for as long as it goes on without anybody speaking up when the wrongs are, are, are so bad, when, when the harms are so bad? And it's because people that are abused, they suppress it, they internalize it. And so people that are not coming forward right now, even though they went through these experiences, um, they might be telling themselves, oh, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. Or they might be telling themselves, you know what, I just, I don't want to relive this. I don't want to go right. through this. Another aspect that many people have explained to me and, and other lawyers that are that are working with me is along the lines of what's the retaliation going to be? They want their Northwestern degree on their CV to mean something. And so they're conflicted with this loyalty to their school and to their degree, but that's put up against the experiences they had, whether it's in football or other sports, that were dehumanizing. So that's been a dynamic as well. And so there are some very, very serious internal struggles that I'm sure are going on with plenty of people that went through something and have decided against coming forward. Maybe they will and, and maybe they won't. And maybe even without coming forward, maybe they're cheering for us. I don't know. Certainly the more people that come forward, I think the more powerful. But even with the clients that we have now, I think we're going to be able to tell a very compelling story that hopefully will effectuate change at Northwestern and other places too. Pat, I'm going to ask for a little bit of grace from you here and ask a question that's very interesting to me. I don't know if others will find it interesting, but are there any statute of limitation concerns here? I believe that your clients were adults when this occurred. Is that something that you are facing or coming up against in, in terms of your litigation strategies? Oh, yes. Well, there's no question. So we have clients from the 90s. We have clients from the early 2000s. We have various theories that are in our complaint that we believe ought to get them around the statute of limitations. But again, uh, being intellectually honest, if it happened within the last two years, that's going to be less of a statute of limitations problem. There's also the Gender Violence Act, which has a seven-year statute of limitations that takes us back to 2016. And that law was written very well. It includes not just the direct perpetrator, but others who 
uh, encouraged or otherwise assisted, which would be that, you know, to your point earlier, Maggie, when you said, I'm going to put my defense lawyer hat on, how are you, <laughs> how, how are you going to, how are, how are you going to bring it to the institution as opposed to the players that did it themselves, right? Because we haven't sued the players. And in my opinion, my estimation is that the abused became the abusers. You know, you, you had folks that saw what was happening and figured out or came to the conclusion that, well, this is how it happened. So now I'm going to do it. Right. Um, they're victims as well. It's a cycle. Right. That's mm -hmm. right. And so, but we're not suing them. We've sued the institution. We've sued various individuals who are, who are at the very high levels of the institution within the athletic department, you know, for that reason, for not having put an end to this. And in that sense, assisted uh, and or encouraged under the Gender Violence Act. So, I feel very confident in our legal theories as it relates to the statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. and, and you're hitting these these universities in Northwestern in particular where it hurts in the pocketbooks. How do you envision this litigation and other litigations impacting college sports and universities in the future? Yeah, so whether it's a school or a company or any other type of entity, frequently they don't respond until you do get them where it hurts. And, and that's our civil justice system. That, that's one way to effectuate change. So I think we will be successful in this litigation. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't believe that. And by doing so, I do think that Northwestern and others are going to take a hard look at their sports culture, how they treat these kids, and improve it. And I was able to talk to an athletic director at a prominent university. It's a very good university academically. It's got a lot of successful sports programs. So I had the opportunity to talk to him. And I asked him because it's, you know, it was no secret that I'm one of the lawyers in this litigation. And I asked him, I said, you know, what do you think? And I was very pleased by his response. He said, you know what? It was a good opportunity for us to take a look and make sure that our house was in order because mm -hmm. we always believed it was. But with this being in the public sphere, it was a very good opportunity for us to talk to our kids, talk to our coaches, and just make sure they're doing things the right way. And I thought to myself, that's exactly how it's supposed to go. And so I hope every athletic director and every university president is doing that and making sure that these kids are being treated how they're supposed to be treated. Should they be worked hard and disciplined and taught important life lessons along those lines? Absolutely. No doubt about it. But it's like parenting. You know when it goes from discipline and teaching good lessons and making sure your child is you know, ready for the world versus abuse. And you can't cross that line. That seems like the perfect place for us to take a break. We'll be right back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. Interested in getting more calls from potential clients? Consider joining the CBA's Lawyer Referral Service. 
The LRS has provided a valuable service to attorneys in the community for over 80 years by matching clients with attorneys in particular areas of law. The LRS receives 25,000 calls annually and makes over 10,000 referrals to attorneys each year. In the last two years alone, LRS attorneys have been referred several cases that have settled for an excess of $1 million. To learn more, visit www.lrs.chicagobar.org. And we're back with Stranger and Legal Fiction. Our listeners know the rules. Maggie and I have done some research. We found a strange law that's out there that is real but probably shouldn't be. We've made another one up, and we're going to quiz Pat and each other to see who can distinguish strange fact from fiction. Pat, you ready? I'm ready. Maggie, you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Ladies first, but Maggie, follow the rules this time. You're a rule breaker on this game. I don't like it. Do it right. <laughs> Did she so jump I, on Lexus or something? What is she, she, she finds all kinds of ways to change the rules. And I, as a lawyer, I, she should be ashamed of herself. We're a rule-following class. I mean, I, I do like to mix it up, but I, I had a feeling that you were going to come in and, and come down on me for breaking the rules. So I came in with a traditional stranger than legal fiction. Traditional? Um, I'm going, oh, wow. Did you just call me old? Like, that's that's what that felt like. Your words, not mine. All right. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to take us to Brazil and ask about gambling in particular. So... One law, false, one law, true or correct. I'm sorry. I'm trying to keep up, John. This is why I was No, no, you're doing, you're doing anyway. the Trish thing where you feel the need to repeat the instructions again. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Okay. So either physical casino games are prohibited in Brazil or online poker games are prohibited in Brazil. Which one is true? Which one is false? Pat, you're the guest. Well, I got to, so here, I, I got to give you a little analysis too, right? I can't just give you an answer. So Brazil, I don't know a ton about Brazil and whether they crack down on gambling. So I, I'm not in a great spot there. Online poker, you know, it's pretty easy to monitor online. Like if I, if I try to make a, a, a sports bet, I, I'll, I'll admit I'm, I'll make a sports bet here and there, but I'm like in Florida, I can't do it. So that's easy to regulate. So I'm going to go ahead and say that the no online poker is the law, but that physical games are okay. And John, what do you think? I feel like I read something about this in The Economist recently. <sighs> this, was, this was in the news recently, wasn't it? Um, maybe. That's not how I came upon it. The answer to the question, John, what do you think? All right. I'm going to say that traditional forms of gambling are illegal and they've not yet gotten around to making online games of chance illegal. I thought I would be able to stump John. Unfortunately, I didn't. Again today, John, it, it is correct. Physical casino games are prohibited. Online is allowed because it's just unregulated at this point. I should have figured that out because that's weird, right? Like, why would you allow online if you're if you're prohibiting physical, I feel like I failed. Oh, I always get stumped. You're going to see it happen right now. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Speaking of, option number one. In West Virginia, it is illegal to display a red or black flag indicating sympathy with or support for ideals, institutions, or forms of government hostile to the Constitution or the laws, ideals, and institutions of that state or of the United States. 
Option number one, no red or black flags, contrary to the ideals of the state or the Constitution. Option number two, in Oregon, colleges receiving state funding are expressly prohibited from requiring their students to use antiperspirant, deodorant, or any scent suppressants of any kind, unless those students are, as part of their curriculum, regularly working with children seven years of age or younger. I'm seeing some smiles. I'm seeing some confusion. I like both of those looks. Pat, what do you think? All right. I'm, I'm learning because I wasn't thinking the right way for that first question. So here's what I'm going to say. Option number one sounds like a more reasonable law. So I'm going to say- Other than the First two, Amendment. Well, Other comparing, than that it, part. comparing yeah. it to option two. Fair enough. Option two sounds kind of ridiculous. Yep. So I'm going to say option two is the real law. And option one, the West Virginia one, was not. I like the thinking. Maggie? I'm going to go with Pat just because the first one is like ringing First Amendment concerns for me. From West Virginia, which would be surprising, right? I mean, completely shocking, That West Virginia, right? of all places, would have unconstitutional legislation. <laughs> well, Pat, let me tell you something. Your thinking here is right 99.9% of the time. That often... The weirder law, the stranger law, the inexplicable law is the real law. Here, however, it's not. Okay. Over two. There you go. So <laughs> the red flag was seen. I did a little digging on this. You know, it's a symbol of communism. And they passed a law in two thousand as recently as 2005 prohibiting it. Now, I don't know how that hasn't been challenged and struck down yet, but it looks like it's still on the books. So... If you go to West Virginia, if you're driving through or, you know, you're going whitewater rafting or something like that, or you want to attend a Trump rally, I suppose, make sure you don't bring a red flag or a black flag unless it says make America great on it. Okay. Uh, ACLU people, ACLU people, if you are listening, please get a hold of that Do they have a West Virginia law. office? Yeah, seriously. They're nationwide. Hop on that, please. <laughs> Pat, I want to thank you for joining us today. This was an absolutely fascinating, informing conversation, if more than a little bit disturbing. And I look forward to reading more about it in the papers. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure talking to you both. I also want to thank my co-host, Maggie Mendenhall-Casey, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us, send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at CBA at the bar, all one word. You can also email us at podcast at chicagobar.org. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar.